And so today we're continuing our sermon series. So this fall we're looking at the Gospel of John, specifically through the, the lens of Jesus and blank. So over the past few weeks we've considered Jesus and your questions, Jesus and your joy, and today we're considering Jesus and your religion. And this is a passage that where we see Jesus talking with one of the biggest religious leaders in the entire um, in the, like one in, in the entire nation of Israel, and but John, the the author of this gospel, uh, he is referred to throughout the gospel as the beloved apostle. He's Jesus' best friend, and he wrote this gospel so that you may believe and have eternal life. And but as he writes that this gospel account, this biography of Jesus, there are eleven very lengthy conversations. This is the first lengthy conversation where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Next week, the second longest conversation is Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in, in many senses, these two chapters of John 3 and John 4 go together. Where John 3, Jesus is talking to a religious leader. And, where, and then in John 4, Jesus is talking to a religious outcast. And so without further ado, let's uh, can jump into God's word today. Beginning in John 2. Verse 23, reading into and, and up to uh, John three twenty-one. So let's give our careful attention to the gospel of our Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is Old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things... And you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you have heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Friends, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray for your word to bear rich fruits within our lives. You give us a promise that your word does not return empty, and that means that your spirit is at word at work within our hearts because we have heard and we consider your word, and we pray that we would respond in faith, belief, and that we also pray that you would meet us and that you would help us to become more like Christ, that we'd be encouraged by these words of love that are given to us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Today the word religious has a certain understanding. And as a pastor, I'm often referred to as a religious person. And I know that when this word is used, at least in a popular definition, in this popular dictionary, so to speak, to be religious means that you are attentive to faith, you're serious about spiritual matters, you take them very seriously, and perhaps, quite perhaps, you are judgy and judgmental. And so when we think about the word Pharisees, as Christians, we come to this word with a certain understanding. Because this is actually how we think about the Pharisees. This is a word that is synonymous with hypocrisy. To be called Pharisaical means to be hypocritical. They are synonymous with one another. And in our passage, we find Jesus speaking with one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And he's quite harsh. He's quite harsh, in a sense. He's actually very scandalous as he is talking with Nicodemus. He's harsh on their system of religion. Because religion, in Jesus' mind, as he's talking to Nicodemus, religion could be that when you are using morality to earn God's love which is something that you cannot do. That's a, a, a lie. But also religion, again, in Jesus' mind, could be in your attempt to prevent God from being angry with you. Now, do you see the problem with that? Because when you use your lifestyle, when you use your religiosity, when you point to your, your good morals, your good behavior to earn God's love or to stay on his good side, here's the thing, here's the problem. You will never know God's love. You will never truly know the love of God. And that is actually the danger of religion that Jesus is warning Nicodemus of. And is exactly what Jesus wants us to learn about today. And so how we are going to see this is like we're first going to look at, set the scene, understand this, the background of the conversation. We're going to look at the conversation itself and we'll see this wonderful invitation to us all. So let's consider the scene that's going on here. Because Jesus, as we have been looking at and considering over the past few weeks, he actually just started his earthly ministry. He just started it. He called some disciples to follow him. He's, done, he's performed a miracle at Cana. And as we immediately see in, in chapter 2, verse 23, there are a group of followers that are coming to him because of the many signs that he was doing. And one of those followers, believers... Actually, the most accurate word is seekers, is Nicodemus. 
and man of the Pharisees. And so while these people may be termed as believers, that's not really an adequate account. That's not really an adequate uh, way to refer to them because they're not truly coming to Christ. This is a type of belief that is really seeking. It's searching. And so one writer described this way, that it's like a twilight area between light and darkness. And therefore, you're either on your way towards the day or towards the, the night. And if many of you were a part of our evangelism training over the past several months, and one of the concepts that we learned about and we shared was that there are several different types of thresholds that a person must cross in order to become a follower of Christ. But in one of those thresholds, and there's like five of them that we, cons- we considered, but one of those thresholds was actually moving from, so- from someone who was actually avoiding God to actually seeking after God. That's actually where Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is in that mode where he has been, where he is now seeking after God, and he is a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a, actually a very popular group within within the Jewish world at the time. They were known for their personal religiosity. They were very devout. They were, they were very God that if, you, if God said, hey, honor the Lord, Sabbath day and keep it holy, the Pharisees would say, hey, we're not going to walk more than 2,000 steps. Who really cares what our Fitbit goal is for the day? That's what the Pharisees were known for. They were faithful, strict. They went over God's law. They they went above and beyond. And so Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, and he's clearly representing the Pharisees' party to to him. He says, we know. He doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. He is representing a group of people as he comes to them, comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus, is this encounter... As it occurs in the middle of the night, or early in the night, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Before the dramatic clash that Jesus would have with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, which we read about in our uh, uh, prayer, in our call to confession. That's when Jesus would actually, if you read the, those woes, there's some more than two of them, or three of them. But Jesus would say, hey, you are the children of the devil. You are whitewashed tombs. You are a brood of vipers. See, Jesus actually was quite harsh with the Pharisees much later. This actually occurs very early on in Jesus' ministry. And so as Nicodemus is there representing the Pharisees, he's actually the perfect representative to come to Jesus. For example, he is a Pharisee, and even Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He is one of the most highly respected theologians in Israel's day. And he even goes on to say that he believes that Jesus is from God. But this is not Nicodemus saying, I believe that you are the Son of God who came away, who came into our world to take away our sin. No, I believe you are a teacher that has been sent from God. That you are like one of the prophets. That you are commissioned from God. And so even as he's coming to Jesus, he actually honors Jesus in a very particular way by treating Jesus as an equal. You see this when, as he says, Rabbi. So Nicodemus is actually coming to Jesus as a seeker, as a truth, as a person who wants to know the truth. But there's a deadly flaw that cannot be missed here. 
And this is a flaw for Nicodemus and for our hearts as well, because he simply sees Jesus as a teacher. He simply sees Jesus as a teacher. He's someone to listen to, someone to consider, perhaps someone to quote, but he is not someone to worship. But thankfully, that's actually not where Nicodemus ends. You've got to go to the very end of the Gospel of John to see that. But so as the, something else to consider to that, Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night. And perhaps he wants the privacy of coming to Jesus, not wanting to be seen as like a sellout to the Pharisee party or a traitor. But he is also coming to Jesus for actually a very serious theological conversa- conversation. And so he'd want to be uninterrupted. He wanted to be able to have the freedom to ask his own questions and not uh, be interrupted by students or followers or others interrupting with their own questions. So he'd want to be able to ask his own questions and investigate who this man is. And so that's really all the background. So let's go to their conversation. So what did they talk about? Well, Nicodemus wanted to explore Jesus' theology. He says, we all know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you, with him. And so this is where Jesus' response comes into scene. And he, Jesus starts with the one central thing to his entire life, his entire ministry, to his entire work, that everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus did has to do with this one thing. And Jesus starts with his kingship. Now, this is actually this idea of, the, of kingship, this kingdom of God, this reign of God, the language of Messiah. This is all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But here in the Gospel of John, we only see Jesus talking about the kingship one other time. And that's when he is on trial before Pilate. And when he is accused, he stands accused of being a rival king seeking to overthrow Caesar. And so this is what Jesus says in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And see, this language of kingdom of God is a very deep, a very deeply biblical idea. The Jewish mind understands this, that one day God would send an anointed king to reign. So Jesus is talking about this idea that is all throughout the Old Testament. It's actually, he's talking about it in a way that you would expect the most significant and celebrated theologian in Israel to be able to competently speak to and debate. And so Jesus also highlights where the, the point of divergence is right away, how Nicodemus and, and Jesus are at completely different points. And Jesus makes it clear that you need to be born again. You need to have this new conception. You need to be a new person in order to be a part of God's kingdom to the point that involves a new birth. And so Nicodemus at this point is, is pushing back. And so some suggest that he is thinking literally, what, are you, need to need, are you saying that I need to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? But there's actually a suggestion in, in incredulity. Like, how can this happen? I don't understand. Because, but another way to think about this is, is where Nicodemus is, is, is saying, what, are you saying that I need to start over again? What, what about my scholarship? 
What about my status? What about my position? What about my personal devotion? How do we do this? How do we do that same thing? What about my own personal devotion? So Tim Keller expressed it this way in his book, Prodigal God, that he writes that religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God to control him, to put him in a a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethics, despite all their own personal piety, they are actually rebelling against his own authority. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here because it's easy to condemn any sort of religious virtue with such statements. And, I, and that is not Keller's point. Jesus' own younger brother, the Apostle James, he speaks and writes about religion quite positively with this, these words. That religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans, and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the real issue that Jesus is getting at here with Nicodemus and with us is that we often use, it's not we often use, it's actually that we have an entitlement because we are religious. That we think, because I am a churchgoer, Because I read this theology, because I do this, because I am blank, God owes me. That's what Jesus is confronting. And so while you actually may not think about that logic today, or perhaps you might be like, yeah, I don't really think that. The reality is that in times of pain and grief and loss, that is when that lie will be manifested in your own life. Where you'll be like, all of a sudden, you'll be saying, God, I did not do blank so that I would be going through this pain right now. That is this idea of religious entitlement, and Jesus is confronting that. And Jesus is being scandalous here. And as Jesus is confronting this, he is being scandalous. That scandal actually comes into context for us. As he says that unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus actually just repeats himself in a sense that you need to be born again in in order to be a part of the kingdom. The scandal is because he is talking to an Israelite. He is talking to a man who is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that Nicodemus has received the sign of the covenant, that as you look at him, he is a man who has been included in that line of Israel, that by his birth, by his heritage, by his status and everything, that he is one of God's children. And as the teacher of Israel, it's quite possible that he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin who was the Jewish religion ruling council at the time. And so the scandal is this, that if Nicodemus is there with all his learning, his position, his gifts, if Nicodemus cannot enter the kingdom of God, then who can? That is where this conversation with Nicodemus goes. If not Nicodemus, then who can enter the kingdom of God? Because heritage, religious practice, and more, that does not matter Jesus is, at, is saying you, we must be born again. We need to become new people in order to be a part of the kingdom. So how many of you are wondering, how can this be? How can this be? 
That's what actually Nicodemus's question is. How can this be? And he asks that. How can this be? And then Jesus keeps going. And that's questions in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? And Jesus answers to him, are you not the teacher of Israel? And Jesus is actually showing us that Nicodemus should have known this was the answer. This is not news. This was actually always written about, always said about, always preached, always prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. And including on the various passages that Nicodemus would have had to memorize and also teach on. Consider this, Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, this is, this is what Jesus is getting at. And it's not from the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Nicodemus should have known this reality. And it's what theologians today call the regeneration, where God takes our cold, calloused, indifferent hearts and transforms them into warm, soft, life-giving hearts. That a cold heart ignores and resists God's word, and a warm, living heart responds to God. And this is, as Jesus says here in John 3, but just as Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, this is from God. This is something that God does within our lives, and it's nothing short of a miracle. So how is this possible? How is this miracle possible? Continuing with Jesus' logic, he continues into the Old Testament. He reminds Nicodemus of another passage that he should have known, that he should have remembered, that it's something that he should have taught about. And it's when Moses crafted a bronze snake and lifted it up. That there were poisonous snakes plaguing and attacking Israel. And it's going on for days. And God said to Moses, lift up the snake. Call upon the people to to look to it, and I will heal them. That I will rescue them. And so what Jesus does is that Jesus reminds Nicodemus of this entire encounter. And he says, and he actually demonstrates that he's the fulfillment. That is a passage that is actually about him. And he says, like, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. So the simple reality is, when you're thinking about how this can be, the simple logic is that we are called to place our trust in him, to place our trust in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple. How can this be? It's by looking at Jesus. That there is no, we we do not deserve it. It does not require merit. There's no 12 steps to take. There are no terms or conditions for you to sign. There are no techniques or disciplines for you to master. This is actually part of the joy of being a Christian. The bar into the kingdom of heaven is low. That all that we need to do is by looking to Jesus. Because Jesus was lifted up upon the cross where he died for your and my own sins. And Jesus gave us life with God. So it's looking to Jesus and putting our trust in in him. Because he secured our life with God. 
And so as we think about this, as, as how is this possible, this actually brings us back to a different question, and, and it begs the question. If, Je- if Jesus can do this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? See, some like Gandhi will consider and refer to Jesus as a religious teacher. And that is exactly what Nicodemus first thought. It's like, Rabbi, we know you are from God. But this is the idea that C.S. Lewis, author of Mere Christianity, wrote against. And he said this, and I'll quote him at length. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So as we think about Jesus, yes, he was a great religious teacher but it is actually because of who he really is. That Jesus, in another point, had, had the, uh, the power to say to a man, rise, get up and walk. But as, he, as, this, as this cripple gets up and walk, the Pharisees are there, and they're wondering, and they're saying things about him, like, who is this man? Actually, I, got, I completely flipped it around. Let me back up. That Jesus says to this man, like, your sins are forgiven. And that's when the Pharisees are like, hey, who is this man who says he can forgive this man's sins? Only God can do that. And that's when Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive his sins. Here's this cripple, and I say, rise, get up and walk. And what's the the man do? He gets up and walks. See, Jesus has the authority to teach us. And he has the authority to claim our lives and to say, follow him and to pick up the cross and follow him and to count the cost and follow him because Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ is God and he can forgive our sins. And this is the entire point, that he is a great religious teacher because he is our God. And as Jesus answers Nicodemus and he explains, explains this work of the new birth, This is where he goes. That he shows us that our God is moving towards us in love. That God loves us and he sent his son to live, to die our death upon the cross, to bear our sins upon the cross, where Jesus also would defeat our greatest enemy like death in his resurrection so that we can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because we have life with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I love this one writer. This is very pithy. The heaven-sent, hell-bent Jesus is the one who saves. That heaven-sent Jesus, and Jesus is, is, is essentially going to hell to face God's judgment for our sins. 
so also that he would save us. And so where this all goes, and this is, this is the challenge for our religious hearts that even Nicodemus has, that if our faith in Jesus never graduates from teacher to savior, then there is no new life, nor is there any real credible Christian faith. If, if we never graduate from Jesus being our teacher to savior, there is no new life. And that is the stark challenge that Jesus has for all of us. That's the stark challenge that he has with Nicodemus. But it ends with a promise, and it ends with an invitation. And this is where we end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So friends, as we look to Jesus, as we put our faith and our trust in him, He is our Savior. God is our Father. We have life with Him everlasting, and it does not end. It is secure, as Peter put it in our call to worship. It is an imperishable inheritance that is ours because of Christ. That is great cause to celebrate. And God calls us, invites us to come to His table and to dine with Him. Let's pray.